Let's pray together, and then we're going to look at that passage together. Lord, we thank you for this time we have together. I thank you for your word, uh, what it teaches us, the way it shows us who you are, and uh, the ways that you love us. We pray this morning that as we open your word, that we would see that clearly, that you would impress upon our hearts uh, of who you are and what you've done for us and what it means for us and how it changes and shapes us into your image, and we pray that you would do that. I pray that your spirit would lead and guide us in this time that you would show us exactly what you want us to see, that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds. You would encourage us. And we would leave here uh, filled with joy over coming face-to-face with the holy God of the universe through what you've done for us in Jesus. It's in his beautiful name that we pray this. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> I've mentioned before, I don't really like uh, reality TV at all. It's kind of the thing that I just really bothers me a lot and a lot of what's on television today and what I mean by reality TV is where they just take random stuff and throw it on TV and they do it a lot because it's cheap and it's easy to put on television but but all that said there's one show that whenever it comes on I've seen it like three or four times ever every time I see it I kind of get sucked into watching it and it's a show if you've ever seen it before it's called Undercover Boss and if, if you know what Undercover Boss is it's it's if you don't that's okay I'll tell you but what it is is a CEO or a president of a company uh, goes and he, he goes for, to work in his own company, right? So the, the head guy, the guy that's overall goes to work in his own company. Last time I saw it, it was probably about a year ago, but the, what, the episode I happened to watch was one where the guy owns a huge hotel chain. And so what he does is he goes to work in his own hotel and he goes to work as a maid and then he goes to work as a maintenance man and then he goes to work at like the night clerk, the desk. And so he does all these things and so what you see when you watch the show, they all kind of play out. I've only seen it a few times, but every time it plays out the same way. He goes into his own company, and he kind of humbles himself to be bossed around by his own people. And what he finds is there's some people that were really underappreciated, and then there's some people that work for him that are awful. And it gets to the very end, and he kind of sets it all right. Basically, that's what happens, right? So if you've never seen it, now you know what it is. I just ruined every episode of Undercover Boss for you. <laughs> And so save yourself the time. But, but what it is, 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 so he goes and he does this. And but, but I was thinking about that in terms of us talking about the incarnation and who uh, Jesus is and what it means for him to be fully God and fully human and those coming together. And, and the reason it kind of stuck in my mind is there's a certain amount of humility when you watch that show for the CEO to allow himself, to humble himself, to come and work as a maid, right? I mean, you see the guy who makes multi-million dollar decisions, who's usually in the boardroom with a coat and tie, and now he's scrubbing toilets. And that happens in your, when you're seeing that show. And now that's a poor example, but, but there is some, some crossover there when we think about the God of the universe coming down and humbling himself to walk amongst us to become human, to put on flesh. And so we're going to think about that. I said last week what we're doing these few weeks leading up to Christmas is thinking about this idea of the incarnation. And what I want us to see as we think about it is just different aspects. Last week we looked in Hebrews 2 and we talked about Jesus being our brother and how him coming in the flesh allows him to be able to call us brother, what he does for us. We talked about that last week. This week, we're going to look in Philippians chapter 2, what Chris just read to us a moment ago, and think about the humility of Christ, uh, the, the, the humility of the obedient servant that he became by coming to us. And so I want us to think of that aspect today, a little bit different uh, a way of looking at it. And we're going to do it by looking at this passage in Philippians 2. And this is a huge passage, one of the most famous. It's, it's monstrous, and it tells us the fullness of the gospel 
and who Jesus is and what he came to do and all this. But we see right in the heart of this, at the very heart of this passage, is this idea of his humility. Of he emptied himself and he came down and what he did. And so that's what I want us to look at and want us to think about today. And so the ways that we're going to do this, the ways that we're going to go at it, is, is, is first... Who is Jesus? Who is he? What do we know about him uh, before the incarnation? The eternal, eternity past, thinking about who he is. Then secondly, what he willfully gave up to come to, uh, to, come to us, to enter in, to enter into the story that's this life. And then lastly, uh, how that changes us. So who he is, what he willfully gives up, and lastly, how that should change us. And so with thinking of that in mind, how that should change us, look at what it says there in verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5 of Philippians. It's on page 636 if you want to follow along in the Bible that looks like this. And so it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And we're going to come back to this in a minute, but I just want to start here in saying this. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When Paul talks about that, he's talking about your mind actually being changed to be like the mind of Christ. Because you are now, if you put your faith in Jesus and you've come to faith in him, the spirit comes in and he begins to transform you. And you begin to not just think about the things of Jesus, but to think like Jesus. And so Paul's pointing us to thinking like him, having the mind of Christ, thinking of things the same way. And so I just want that to be in your mind as we, as we think on these things and we look at these things. And as we're doing this, the hope is that it changes us. It's not that we just think about it, but that we become conformed to his image and we begin to actually think this way. And so I just want that just kind of as we set the stage before we go into any of these things, that that to be in your mind, that this should change us. It should change us to think the way Christ thinks. And so let's look at what it is. So who is he? Let's start there. Verses five, six and seven. And we're really going to spend most of our time in five to eight. We read all that for context. We'll hit a few other points. But this, this is such a huge passage, we have to limit it a little bit. And so we're trying to limit it more to the humility, the obedient servant, that part, that aspect of the incarnation. So who is he? Look at 5, 6, and 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by becoming the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so I wanted to start right there with one of the things that says real early there in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, and think about what that means. You know, what Paul says here in the word he uses, and when he says form and what that's talking about, the connotation there is very literally the very essence of God. That's really what he's saying. That's, that's what the word that he uses, that he chooses to use there, form, that's what it means. The very essence of God. And so what he's saying is that Jesus is completely, truly, holy God. And what we have right here in Philippians 2, it's what makes this passage so majestic when you start to read it and to think about it is that Paul starts with this idea that, that the highest of high Christology, and we say Christology, we mean who Jesus is. And he says Jesus is God. He is the very essence of God. Now that's not unique to just this passage, but the words he chooses to use there drives this home so clearly. Now, we see it other places. Paul says it other places. He says it, uh, for example, in Colossians 2, which I read at the beginning this morning. Actually, I read from us from Colossians 1, but a little later in Colossians 2. And even in that passage that we read this morning, he says a very similar thing. That for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, the fullness of deity, fully God. 
And so Jesus is fully, fully God, completely and totally. Or we read in John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's the part there before he comes into the earth. From eternity past, he's been with God. Completely God, completely in relationship with the Father, completely there. And then it tells us that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Same thing that Colossians 1 says. Tells us that over and over in Scripture. That Jesus spoke into creation. He was there for all of it and he's always existed. You see that over and over. You see it in Hebrews 1. I mentioned this briefly before we went into Hebrews 2 last week. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So I want you just to think about who Jesus is. He is eternal, and he is eternally God, fully God, the very essence of God. And so just thinking about that for just a second, you know, maybe you have issues with that, or maybe you know people who do. Right? Maybe you shared your faith with other people and they've said to you, I've had people say, you don't really think Jesus was God, do you? It's a very modern objection today. And if you follow the thought, what happens a lot, and maybe you've had conversations, maybe you have this objection. And it goes something like this, that, that Jesus came and he was a wonderful, humble, gracious man who was so full of wisdom and he was a wonderful teacher and he walked in this life and he did all these great things and then he died and his followers didn't know what to do with it. And so over time, they started to talk about how great he was, and it took on a life of its own. And it took on this great myth, and people started to add to it. And then over time, they started to say he was actually God. And they started to embellish with stories and tell things. That's a very modern objection today. People say that. Part of that is because we like Jesus just to be a guy. If he's just a good guy, then he can't really hold any claim on us, and, it, and, and he's safe. And so that's very common today, and people say that a lot. And, it, and, and in a way, I just want to ask, does that even sound plausible? Right? And you go, well, maybe. You start to think that. But, but what, I'm, what I'm coming to and what I want you to see, even in this passage that we're looking at, this very passage, what Paul's writing, when he's writing and what he says here, blows that idea that it was something that grew over lots and lots of time out of the water. What he says right here. And the reason that I say that is, is it doesn't matter really who you look at. Very, very conservative scholars or very liberal scholars, they both agree about something about this passage. And it starts in verse 6, what we just read there, and it goes through verse 11. Almost all of them believe that verses 6 through 11, that Paul's quoting something that predates this letter he wrote. Most likely a hymn or possibly a confession of faith that was being circulated, that people were saying over and over that they knew it was a way to clearly articulate who Jesus is and what he's done and how he's come. And so I want you to think about this for just a second. This letter to Philippians, to the church in Philippi, was a letter written about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then in this letter, he quotes something that's been circulated for a long time before that. And so what we're getting to, and what I want you to see, is from the very beginning of the Christian church, from the very foundings of it, they were worshiping Jesus as God. Paul's quoting something that everybody knew and all those that were believers accepted. It was a confession of faith, a hymn that they sing. And so what I'm driving at is the idea that over a long period of time, over successive generations, that they started to tell and retell and it started to shape and take on a life of his own makes no sense because they were worshiping Jesus as God from the very beginning. 
And so as we start with who he is, right, before, before we consider what he gave up and what he came to do, we have to think about who Jesus is. And what I want us to see clearly is this, is that Jesus has eternally existed as God. He is eternal. I want you just to think about that for just a moment. That by, by all eternity past, he has been reigning in the heavens with his Father in perfect uh, unity and perfect power through the Spirit, three in one, worshiping. Think about uh, Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah comes into the throne room of God and the angels are there and they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's Jesus in eternity past. Nothing was made that he didn't have a part in, that he didn't speak by the power of his word. And so I want you to have that view in your mind of who Jesus is and how high that is. And then I want you to think about this picture, what he willfully gave up. These next few verses here, what he willfully did. That is who Jesus is from all eternity past. And then look at verses 6 and 7. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so this picture that even though he is God from all eternity past, there's nothing that has been made apart from him, that he willfully decides to limit himself and walk into this earth, to become a man, to put on humanity, to walk in in the same ways that we do. Now, I want to be careful what we say because this is a very essential, uh, important Christian doctrine, something that we believe, and it's very important to a lot of ways that we look at Scripture and how we see it. And I think it's very, uh, very clearly taught in Scripture. But Jesus did not leave behind his deity when he came in. He took being fully God, and he added and came in and brought in humanity, and they hold together perfectly in him. Right? I just, just read to you just a second in Colossians 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, fully God. And then it tells us here that he came and he took on the likeness of man, even as a servant, fully human. And so we say that, that Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. He brings both together. And so the creator God of the universe allows himself to come in and, and, and humbles himself in this way to walk amongst us, to become human. You know, there's, there's this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, and he says it so well. C.S. Lewis says so many things so well. But just to think about the, the magnificent of this idea, to even try to get your head around it, just listen to what Lewis writes in Mere Christianity. The second person in God, the Son, became human himself, and he was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of a particular height, with the hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone, the internal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. I want you just to think about the way Lewis says that because he paints such a vivid picture there. Uh, just, it helped me even reading that this week and thinking about it over and over, and I've read that quote a lot, of a particular height and a particular language and a particular size, and he came into this body and he limited himself in that way. 
And not only that, but I was struck as I read that in the way he says that, that he limited himself to become a baby and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. I want you to think about the king of the universe enters into this life and he was born in the exact same way that we all got here. He didn't bypass any of that. He stepped in in all humility and came that way. And it baffles your mind to think about the creator who upholds all things by the power of his word, limiting himself in that way. And so I think about that picture, but that's not all that it says here. It says he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. Right? Not only did he come as a fetus and then a baby and being born and having to learn to talk and to walk and to feed, have someone feed him, all those things, but to walk in and to think about where he was born. He was born in a little town in the middle of nowhere with no wealth, no huge... uh, He could have chosen God, would have been right to do so. He certainly deserves it. Could have been chosen to be born into the greatest royalty and great riches and grown up that way, but he didn't. He took on the form of a servant and came to a, a, a husband and wife in the middle of nowhere with no money and all the things that go with that. And you think about him growing up in those ways and what that looks like. Not only that, it tells us in Scripture that he grew up in the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was a little nothing town that no one thought anything about. He was kind of growing up in the sticks and the hills. Not that different from Dawsonville. Think about the Creator God coming down and being born in Dawsonville or Jasper or, or Cleveland, right? He comes in in that way. Right? You can see why religious leaders were so upset when Jesus shows up with his band of men from the hills of Nazareth. And they're going, who is this guy? Right? They, they actually say that, right? John chapter 1, when Jesus calls his first disciples. They say, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, what? Right? He actually says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Are you serious? You think God came from Nazareth? It doesn't make sense into our earthly mind, but Jesus so humbles himself to come in. Even think about his life that he grew up in. He was a carpenter. That was the family business he came into. There would have been hanging over his head his whole life of, was he really a legitimate birth? Is that really Joseph's son? They say that, but I'm not so sure. Right? That would have hung over him his whole life. Joseph dies somewhere in that time between 12 and when his ministry starts. So there was a part where he was the the oldest son of a family without a father. And so you think about all those things that the God of the universe humbles himself in that way and comes down. But then look at verse 8. That's not all. It doesn't stop there because verse 8 tells us, uh, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want you to think about that for just a second. Obedient even to death. And so the question becomes obedient to who and for what? Who is the God of the universe obedient to? And Scripture tells us, and we see in so many places, that he's being obedient to the Father. In prayer breakfast for a year and a half, it's now our running joke, a year and a half we've been in the Gospel of John. Uh, We finished uh, John 17 just a couple of weeks ago. and We were in John 17 for couple months. And, and what we were looking at is that prayer of Jesus to the Father, the high priestly prayer. He's praying for us to the Father. And he really answers those questions. Just listen to what he says. 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and I have kept your word. So Jesus tells us, obedient to death. Who is he being obedient to? He's being obedient to the Father to come and to redeem a people that the Father has given him. And he comes down and he's completely obedient and he walks in complete obedience to the Father. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Loving God and loving man perfectly. Keeping the the covenant between God and man in every way. And he comes and he lays his life down that we can be reconciled to God. It's the heart of the gospel. We say that every week. But what I want you to think about is so often we talk about Jesus coming on the cross. And we say that. And it's important we remember it each week in communion. But I want you just to think about this for just a second. The way Paul even writes this here. Found in human form, being humbled. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then he says, even death on a cross. And the picture that is there, that even death on a cross, dying on a cross, public crucifixion was the most humiliating way to die. It was the public death sentence of a criminal and they hung you on a cross outside the city so everybody could see. And what they were saying in a lot of ways is if you cross Rome, this is what happens to you. You die like this. You die like a criminal on the outskirts of the town in a very public and humiliating way. And so when he says humble themselves even to the point of death on a cross, The creator God of the universe that holds all things together by the power of his word allows himself to be beaten and tortured and spit on and then hung on a cross to die. You just think for just a second about the humility that's involved when God does that. The last couple of years on Good Friday, we've gathered together and we've listened to a dramatic reading. If you've been here for that, if you've heard it, you will have remembered that we did that. And it's a pastor in uh, Maryland that wrote this, this uh, dramatic retelling of what happened on the cross. And I think his theology is very sound. He's very creative in the way he did it. But there's a particular part of his retelling that stands out to me that helps to show us what Paul's talking about when he says he humbled himself to even death on a cross. So it says this, The, be- the beam becomes his pillow now. Two two men take hold of his hands. The soldier on his left yanks his arm as far as it will go, but the soldier to his right is gentler. Jesus turns to him. It's the merciful centurion again, and he picks up a cold spike and places it to Jesus' wrist, and then he picks up a hammer. Their eyes meet, and eternal love shines forth, and the centurion is undone, and he looks away and lifts his hammer. I want you to listen carefully to this part with this in mind that Hebrews 1 tells us that, tells us that he upholds the universe by the power of his word. In that moment, Jesus hears his own word of power, the word of power that holds the merciful centurion in existence, the word of power that causes the hammer to be, 
He's speaking it all into being. The soldiers, the priests, the thieves, the friends, the mothers, the brothers, the mob, the wooden beams, the spikes, the thorns, the ground beneath him, and the dark clouds gathering above. If he ceases to speak, they will cease to be. But he wills that they remain so the soldiers live on and the hammers come crashing down. By the power of his word, we exist. By the power of his word, he upholds what happened at the crucifixion and he could have stopped it at any moment. But he wills that it remains. He allows it to happen so that he can purchase a people, that he can purchase your redemption that the Father's given him, and he can present you blameless back to him. And you think about the humility of that picture. And I want you to think about that picture and then think about what Paul says, that we have the mind of Christ, that Jesus is the exact imprint of his very nature. We see Jesus, we see God. And so there it is. It's what it looks like. It's what God looks like. I want you to think about that for just a second and how that looks like, what that looks like to have the mind of Christ. And Paul tells us several things right here. And we'll end with this. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so just this picture of the the very image of God, and that's what it looks like, counting others more significant than yourself, that Jesus came not lacking anything, not needing anything. He had perfect joy. He had perfect relationship. All of that bound up in his relationship with the Father. From all eternity, he didn't need anything, but he humbled himself to come so that he could redeem us. And so Paul says, if you have the mind of Christ and you're being transformed to his image, you're going to put others first. You're going to lay aside your own needs and your own wants and your own desires to love others. And so he says that in verses 3 and 4, but then look at verses 14 when he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What's the opposite of grumbling? Praise. Joy. Being overfilled with those things. And so this picture of what the mind of Christ looks like, when we see the humility of our Savior and what He humbled Himself to do on our behalf, we should be overflow with praise. Not grumbling and complaining, but joy-filled that the God of the universe would come and do that for us. That he loved us that much. But not only there, look at the last few verses. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. And so as we end, I just want you to think of this. As we get closer to Christmas, what is the proper response to the incarnation? That the God of the universe humbled himself in this way to come to us. What is the proper response? I think it's what Paul says in verse 17. 
and being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. It's being poured out for the glory of God, and you do that by loving others, by humbly submitting and putting others first, and doing so without grumbling and complaining, and you do all that so that you are a light in this twisted and broken world that points to who God is. And so often we make Christmas about so many other things. And so we have an opportunity in this time of year when people are looking and talking about Christmas and what it means to be a light that shines forth, having the mind of Christ, loving people in the ways that Christ has loved us. And now here's the best part. As you put on the mind of Christ, you were originally made in his image. You were made in his likeness. We were made to be in a relationship with him. You were made to live this way. We say it all the time around Christmas. It's better to give than receive. It actually is. Because you were made that way. You were made to be about other people. You were made to love others and put them first. You were made to glorify God in all things. And when we align to that, it's not only the greatest gift you can give, it's the greatest gift you can get. It's both. What a wonderful picture of who Christ is and what he's done for us and what it calls us to. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, Philippians 2. I thank you for all of your word that you have inspired and you have preserved for us in the way that it points us to you. I pray this morning that as we leave here that this would just settle on us. The love of Christ for us, what you have done for us in the ways that you love us, what it teaches us, what it shows us. I pray that we'd be changed by that, that we would truly have the mind of Christ, that you would remake us in your image for your glory. I pray that uh, as we go today, as we spend the rest of our time in worship and as we go out, that we would seek to do that, that we would have opportunities to reflect back who you are to this broken world. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand as we continue to worship.